Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Now, here's a story you're going to hear for the first time. Former Afghan National Army Major General Ahmad Habib, who served alongside the Canadian military in Kandahar province from 2006 to 2011, including serving with former Chief of Defense Staff General Jonathan Vance and with the now Minister of National Defense, Harjit Sajjan, and uh, General Habib, who received the Medal of Meritorious Service from the Canadian government, the general now lives in fear for his life and the lives of his family in Afghanistan. He sleeps no more than two nights in the same location. General Habib is pleading with the federal government of this country to provide him and his family visas to Canada as refugees. And the Canadian government, according to General Habib and former PPCLI Major Mark Campbell, who, as you know, lost both his legs in an IED attack in Afghanistan, it appears our federal government has zero interest in making it possible for General Habib to enter this country. He fought with Canadian forces from 2006 to 2011 in Kandahar province to try to rid the world of terrorism. And now, we don't recognize him. Just, it appears, just as we don't recognize the effort that was put forward by the interpreters. Uh, Major General Habib joins me from Afghanistan. How are you, General? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And and with us as well is my good friend, Major Mark Campbell, PPCLI, retired. Mark, it's good to talk to you, and thank you for making me aware of General Habib's issue. Good afternoon, Roy. Always a pleasure to meet you or talk to you and uh, to be on your show. So, Mark, I've, I read my introduction that I wrote out based on the letter I saw from the general. But in your words, tell us about the contribution that General Habib made and what you've been trying to do to make it possible for the general and his family to come to this country. Sure, Roy. Um, General Habib um, was was Canada's principal ally in Kandahar province. He was a senior member of the Afghan National Army in charge of the brigade that uh, the Canadian military was working alongside to try to bring peace and stability, security to the people of Kandahar province. So he was our principal ally. He was our go-to guy, and he was the direct uh, counterpart and equivalent to our senior Canadian on the ground who had been Commander Task Force Afghanistan. Uh, in various six-month uh, stints. So Major General Habib worked with uh, notable individuals such as General Vance when he was Commander Task Force Afghanistan twice, uh, worked with uh, General uh, Dean Milner, who's also working on this case, trying to get the government of Canada to provide refugee status to General Habib and his family. Um, so he worked with all of our heavy hitters, so to speak. And those senior Canadian military officials are the ones who identified General Habib as not only Canada's principal ally, but as someone who could continue the good work of, of the Canadian forces in getting things done in terms of professionalizing the and, and progressing the Afghan National Army so they would be able to take responsibility for the security of their country uh, from the NATO forces, um, the, uh, the International Assistance Force. Now, I've, I've been, I, I, I'm aware of General Habib's problems because he and I have maintained contact since I was injured and blown up in 2008. General Habib was the only Afghan member of the Afghan National Army or the Afghan government to reach out to me and to thank me for my sacrifice on behalf of the people of Afghanistan, the loss of my legs in, in combat. So as a result of that, uh, the general and I have kept in touch, mostly, you know, just salutations on birthdays and uh, and uh, christmas and and various uh, holidays and and vacation times but um it, it took on a sense of more urgency over the last you know eight months or so when i became fully aware of the dire circumstances that general habibi and his family face uh in afghanistan right now where he's received night letters from the taliban uh, death threats against himself and his family such that He's compelled to sleep in a different bed every two nights in order to keep the the Afghans or the 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 the, the Taliban off his trail and to keep his family safe. So he's not with his family. His family is shut in. His children aren't able to go to school because of the death threats. 
So they're doing self-schooling from home, which has an impact on the children and, and the mother. Uh, and, of course, the, the general isn't spending much time with his family because he's on the run from the Taliban trying to lead them away from his family. So a horrible, horrible situation for the general. Um, and then to find out that he's been on such good relations with everybody from uh, our former Chief of Defence Staff, Jonathan Vance, to our current Minister of Defence, Harjit Sejan, um, I reached out to Harjit Sejan, wrote him a, a letter. Um, I also included a letter from General Habib in there to the Minister of National Defence, similar to the one you received, Roy. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say that uh, I wrote those letters well over a month ago and uh, have received nothing but utter silence from uh, the Minister of uh, National Defense. I reached out, well, I made contact with General Milner, uh, retired General Milner, who is another former member of Task Force Afghanistan, who knows General Habibi well, speaks to him every few weeks, he said. And uh, General Milner and I traded notes, and, and he is bound and determined to try to uh, shake the Canadian government awake into uh, dealing effectively with General Habib's urgent problems. And this is the problem, Roy, is the government of Canada appears to be a sleeping giant. And the appendages of that government in the form of the Minister of National Defense, for instance, aren't answering their mail. So we've got a problem here in trying to bring attention to um, Immigration, Refugee, Citizenship Canada about this situation so they can fast-track the general who did submit all of his documentation and did apply for refugee status while his family was in uh, Karachi, India, or Karachi, Pakistan. Mm -hmm. One of the two, I forget which, but he was... Uh, while he was um, fleeing from the Taliban and took his family overseas to India, right. I know that he applied for uh, refugee status at that time. So it exists in the Canadian system somewhere, his application. The question is where and how far along well, let's, it progressed. Let's hope, Mark, that by airing this broadcast, it will get to the right people and they will understand. But the fact that you wrote a letter to the Minister of National Defense uh, Minister Sajjan, who knows uh, General Habibi, there is no reason for the general to be, receive only silence from his former colleague who, fo who fought alongside him, worked alongside him in Afghanistan. General Habibi, how concerned are you for your life? Uh, please repeat me. How, how concerned are you for your life, for your safety, for your safety and the safety of your family in Afghanistan? How dangerous is it for yeah, you in I'm Afghanistan now? I'm very worried about my family because a uh, big risk for them about the uh, terrorists uh, every day in Afghanistan. Uh, terrorist target, uh, high-level officer, uh, family members. My my children, all of them uh, stay at home. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes they change it location. It's a big uh, problem for my family members. General, what do you remember specifically? What do you remember most about fighting alongside the Canadian military in Kandahar province? What are your strongest memories? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah I, 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 I work with uh, Canadian uh, 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 shoulder to shoulder and Kanda 2006 until 2011. Uh, um, uh, 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 11 um, with uh, with Canadian soldier. It's honor for me. Uh, uh, I I fight uh, uh, terrorists in Kandar. Um, uh, I I did a Madusa operation with. Uh, uh, now he is in General Lawai, uh, uh, General Lawai. That time he is a lieutenant colonel. Uh, I I was uh, 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 I was with him in the Madusa operation. And you received from the Canadian government, you received a medal of meritorious service for your service in Afghanistan, fighting with our, with our forces. You also attended the Canadian Force College in Toronto, where you, uh, I'm reading from your letter, successfully completed your study and graduated in 2015. But now you're in Afghanistan, and you're being targeted by the very people who you fought against with the Canadian military. General Habibi, when you, uh, you actually moved to India for a period of time before returning to Afghanistan, did you apply to enter Canada f from India, and why did you return 
to Afghanistan from India? Because Canadians didn't accept it, uh, didn't accept it to my family members for uh, refugee. After that, um, uh, no cho- choice for me. I uh, I come back to Afghanistan. Uh, here is uh, a lot uh, big risk for my family. Uh, I, I I didn't uh, find uh, other choice because I work with Canadian. It's honor for me. Uh, I have a lot friend uh, in Canada. Um, uh, I work with Canadian uh, soldier uh, shoulder to shoulder uh, in Kandar. Uh, for uh, this reason, I requested for Canada government, um, but uh, um, I stay for long time. There is um, also um, uh, I didn't find other way. I I I uh, come back to Afghanistan with uh, all risk and. Uh, security risk in Afghanistan. I, I stay here. Yeah. yeah. Mark, talk to us, please. Tell us, please, about what it was like to be fighting with uh, General Habibi as, as, a, as, a, as a fellow warfighter, as somebody who is on your side and taking on the Taliban and taking on the insurgents and trying to rid the world of the terrorism we were so concerned about in this part of the world. You were on the front lines saving us from, protecting us from this, along with the general. What was it like to fight alongside him? Well, I mean, it was it was it was for me it was a privilege and, a, and an honor to fight alongside the Afghan National Army. Uh, I was I was with our uh, operational mentoring and liaison team, so I was with the the small groups that were uh, directly attached to the Afghan National Army, providing them on the job training in the middle of the war, so to speak, uh, on how to conduct combat operations and and to try to professionalize the security forces of Afghanistan so they could stand on their own two feet. Um, it, it was an honor. I, I got to tell you, I was I was literally embedded with the Afghans. Uh, normally, it's the reverse, but I was embedded with them, and uh, uh, I got to basically do everything except pray with them uh, every day, and uh, meals, everything, you name it. Uh, we we lived shoulder to shoulder with the Afghans, and it was it was it was a privilege. It really was a privilege to to have the opportunity to see another culture um, on, at that level, at that at that intimate level. And it was only because of the trust of the Afghans and the friendship that they extended to us that, that we were able to work so closely with them and to be such effective allies together. For five they years. Knew the ground. They knew the ground. They knew the enemy. Yeah. They knew the hiding spot. Yeah. I mean, without them, we would have been lost. So they saved Canadian lives, no question. There is no question about that. General, General Habibi is, is, is the one in charge of the Afghans who was responsible ultimately for saving those Canadian lives. And here we are. Uh, we we won't even repay him with uh, the basic necessities of life for himself and his family. I General, mean, it's, it's, it's atrocious. General really Habibi, atrocious. General Habibi, what would you say to what would you wish to say to uh, your former friend and, and colleague, the Minister of National Defense, um, uh, Mr. Sajjan? And what would you what do you want to say to the to the Canadian government about uh, coming to this country as a refugee? What do you want them to understand? My request for uh, Minister Defense, uh, he uh, uh, he protected my family uh, in Canada. Uh, would you like my son uh, talk to you? We we only have about um, a minute and a half left, so I'm going to keep you on on the line, Mark. What 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 happens now? What happen, I mean, we're, I'm happy to broadcast this. It's very important to do this and to get the word out and have Canadians understand what's going on because we talked about the Afghan interpreters who are not being uh, welcomed into this country as they should be, and now we have the major general who fought alongside our troops for five years. What next, Mark? What next is waking up the government of Canada and getting them to do the right thing, Roy. And that, that boils down to people who are, are, are invested in this, people like the Minister of National Defense, like the former Chief of Defense Staff, who need to get actively involved. Ministers can talk to ministers and make things happen. That's why I'm approaching the Minister of National Defense, who has a direct and personal link to General Habibi. 
and and I need him to talk to the right. Minister of Immigration, Refugee, and Citizenship Canada and get the ball rolling on this so that we can bring the general and his family to safety in in Canada. And keep remember, I mean, keep in mind, one. keep in mind, Mark, the general changes his location of sleep every forty eight hours because he's right. afraid for himself and for his family because they've been threatened by the insurgents he fought and the Taliban he fought alongside Canadians. There's a new book, and it's it's a great read. I haven't read it all, but I am reading it, and it's really got my attention. The book is titled Blood Gun Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels. And it's written by journalist Ian Grillo, who lives in Mexico and chases down in the book how American arms... America, rather, arms gangs and cartels. Now, I didn't know this. This number is staggering. There's an estimated 393 million guns in civilian hands in the United States. And Mr. Grillo in the book points out that while the numbers of guns are increasing, the numbers of legal gun owners is actually decreasing in the U.S. That got my attention. And uh, in the book, in Blood Gun Money, Mr. Grillo talks to arms makers, to street corner thugs, to hitmen and members of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, to gun buyers and sellers, and victims, as well as perpetrators of gun violence. So as this country wrestles with the most recent federal government action on legally purchased and owned guns and firearms, we also know that guns are entering this country illegally from the United States. So let's talk to Ian Grillo, the author of Blood, Gun, Money. Ian, thank you for the time. I have to ask you out of the gate, what's it like to live in Mexico over the last 20 years and just see the cartels increasing their power, their influence, and their violence and see the body count climb? What's that like for you as a journalist? Yeah, I mean, there's two sides to this. I mean, I've been here 20 years. I came from the UK 20 years ago when I was 27 years old, now here at 47. Um, so I've had most of my adult life here. Uh, on one side, I've been blessed to be in a beautiful country like Mexico. Uh, I still love this country, love the people, the food, the culture, the the scenery, everything. On the other side, I found myself covering what can be best described as a form of hybrid armed conflict that has killed uh, north of 200,000 people, left tens of thousands disappeared in mass graves, uh, seen an incredible amount of violence and things I just could not have imagined. Um, being in a, a morgue with 49 corpses all decapitated, all with their hands and feet cut off, is just one example. Uh, being around shooting, lost good friends to the violence and seen way too many mothers crying, looking for their sons who have been uh, murdered. So you have this 20 years of experience. You've seen the worst of the worst. You've seen, you describe it as a tidal wave. Uh, you wrote, uh, in, in the two decades I've been living in Mexico, I've watched the bloodshed rise like a tidal wave, destroying too many lives, and with them the broader hopes of the nation. But you begin the book, and I found this very interesting. I want to ask you about this. Uh, you begin the book with the trial of El Chapo, the boss of the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico. Why? Well, I went to his trial, some of his trial in Brooklyn, which was a very uh, important, I think, marking point in the war on drugs. If you see the war of drugs that was began by with Richard Nixon in 1971, so it's 50 years this year, that was really the accumulation of decades and decades of just going after the bigger and bigger kingpins. And he was the ultimate kingpin. This was the biggest uh, show trial, drug trial in the United States in his history. Uh, and also, it was well as him being accused or being convicted of what they said was $14 billion worth of drugs going to the United States heroin, crystal meth, cocaine, marijuana. He was also running Firearms South, and they talked about this in the trial, but they did not convict him on firearms trafficking charges because there is no federal firearms trafficking law in the United States, which is something I discovered covering this. So I think it's a very important kind of point in this whole story. All right, let's move to the guns. Uh, and where do they originate in the United States? Is it nationwide? Is there one area in particular? And is there any reliable estimate of how many guns flow through the Iron River to the cartels and the gangs in Mexico and beyond? Sure. So guns are sold across the United States. It varies, obviously, in different states, different regulations. The guns themselves that are being taken to Mexico are made in different factories, but also some of them are, uh, are made in Europe including in Romania, where I traveled to for the book, in a, to a Klasnikov factory in Romania, in Kujir, uh, taken to the United States, sold in the United States, and then smuggled to Mexico. Now, the biggest states for the guns going to Mexico are the border states. Texas is 
the biggest state for gun shops in the country. Also, Florida is a massive state for, for gun trafficking more broadly across Latin America, the Caribbean, and this is repeated right across the hemisphere. Now, the numbers, officially, the last 12 years, we, we know concrete number of guns that have been taken from criminals, cartels and other criminals, and traced to the United States is 164,000 guns. But they believe that's the tip of the iceberg, and the real number over the last decade is more than two million guns. That oh, estimate's coming from both the Mexican Foreign Ministry and uh, an institute in San Diego in the United States. All right, so now, if you go with the two million number, and uh, and then you look at what's happened in Mexico, which you've observed over the 20 years that you've been living in Mexico, and you write about this, the cartels, given the firepower that they have, they can actually outgun the Mexican police and the Mexican army, and they have been successful in actual firefights, have they not, in backing off the Mexican police and the army? Yeah, I, I mean... To talk, think about the, the actual scale of these guns, I mean, another important firearm that is traveling from the United States to Mexico are rifles that fire 50 caliber bullets. So these are bullets the size of small knives. These are definitely, you know, think of as militarized weapons, but you can buy them in American gun shops for north of $10,000, and they're taken south into Mexico and used by cartels on a regular basis to fight with police and soldiers. Now, in one battle in 2019, October 2019, the Mexican military and police attempted to arrest one of the sons of El Chapo, called Obidio Guzman, in the city of Culiacán, Sinaloa. And this firefight ensued that 700 to 800 gunmen were reported to come out in the streets, that's a figure by the Mexican army, and fight soldiers. And there's a video of them firing with his 50 cal and a bullet literally blowing the leg off a soldier. The leg literally explodes. This is, this is on, on, on video. And with this firepower, the Mexican army eventually backed off or got the orders to back off from the Mexican government and released the, uh, the suspect. So you really see in that case, Mexican uh, armed forces really being knocked down by this firepower that the cartels have. Okay, so Ian, I know a little bit about firearms. And I do know that a 50 cal, if you take a burst of a, from a 50 cal into a light armored vehicle, it's going to knock the damn thing off its wheels, right? Absolutely. Okay. So where do they get these? I, I get the, you know, I get the, uh, I can understand the AK-47s and I can understand, uh, you know, the, the, the some, you know, significant number of military weapons getting to them, a smaller caliber. Well, where do they get 50s? Yeah, so, so you, you can look at some of these. I mean, you can look on the internet now, look at these websites, and you can see that 50 cals are for sale in the United States. There's these shops uh, in Arizona, which is one big source of weapons and big source of 50 cals that sell these. Um, they will pay a straw buyer, which is like an American citizen with a clean record, to walk in and buy it, normally pay about $500 for a 50 cal, only $100 or $50 for buying a smaller gun the thing is these straw buyers again it gets there's no law for for even for straw buying so when they are arrested it's for done for lying on the form and they normally get probation and they're walking in and buying 50 cows and you're going to cartels and again I mean, this is why it's kind of a crazy story because it's not only the question of the right to bear arms and i do respect american second amendment and people who are having guns yeah, for self-defense and hunting but actually allowing this kind of weaponry to go to criminals, which are destabilizing the, the southern country, killing even American agents and driving refugees to the U.S. border. Yeah. Now, I, I understand. I, I get the, the part of the 50 cows being available, as you described, but that would be in somewhat limited numbers, I would, I would expect. So they're getting the, if they're getting them in massive numbers, they're getting them from another source as well. And is that source what I suspect it might be? The military. I mean, there, yeah, I mean, there, there are there are theft of weaponry from the Mexican military, and sometimes there's also reported theft from the U.S. military and militaries in other countries um, in in Latin America. But if we look at the the sheer numbers of guns that seem to have gone missing from the military in Mexico compared to what's coming over the U.S. border into Mexico it seems to dwarf what is coming in from the United States to what is being stolen in Mexico. 
But but absolutely, there's certainly a lot of issues of corruption and other weapons like grenade launchers, rocket propelled grenades are coming from the military. One of these was used to shoot down a Mexican military helicopter in 2015. Wow. There's no doubt that guns are also flowing north into Canada from the United States illegally, right? Absolutely, yes. I mean, uh, I think these are these are very twin problems. Uh, obviously, the level of violence in Mexico compared to Canada is incomparable. Um, but it, there's still a lot of the mechanics and everything I write in the book about the mechanics behind gun trafficking in the United States and how it flows out to Mexico and, and a hundred, more than 100 other countries. It all applies to Canada as well. All right. So let me switch questions. Talk to us about the mechanics of the guns making their way from the United States to the cartels and the gangs in Mexico. So what I see is you have um, parallel gun markets in the United States. You have a legal market and a black market in firearms. So with this, like with drugs, which I've been looking at for 20 years, it's like illegal through all the chains. You have a cocaine made illegally in Colombia, trafficked to the United States illegally and sold illegally. But guns are made mostly in legal factories and then cross this invisible line to a black market from which when it's in the black market, it can reach U.S. cities and criminals in Baltimore, Washington, can reach Canada, it can reach Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, Brazil, and many other countries. Now, there's four main ways you see the guns go into the illegal market. One that we talked about earlier was straw buying, when people are paid to buy the guns. Another is through a thing called the, uh, the uh, private sale loophole, where you have supposed collectors selling guns, but often they're abusing this to actually buy and sell guns to the black market. Then the third and fourth method are theft and building of assembling ghost guns. So these four methods, when it gets into the black market, and then in Mexico, they're often going down with the guns in fridges, in stoves, just driving them right over the border into Mexico. Um, Questions, more questions than time. So I'm going to skip past that question I was going to ask you because I want to ask you about this. This is what you also get at. What remedies to slow down the tide of the Iron River are you suggesting? And again, I'm looking again at this 50 caliber uh, rifle, which can penetrate and destroy light armored military vehicles. What are some of the options you, they have to, if not stop it, certainly slow it down? Yeah, re- reduce the, uh, slow the Iron River, reduce the Iron River, I think, is that's the, what I put in an editorial I was in the New York Times. What the, um, I, I say these four methods can all be addressed and without attacking Second Amendment rights. So you can um, close down this the private sale loophole with universal background checks, which are supported by 89% of Americans and 81% of conservatives in, in one survey. Um, they can increase the punishments, the sentencing for these straw buyers. Now, so right now, these people are given probation. In one case, I look at a guy went into a shop and bought 10 AK-47s for a drug dealer. He knew the guy was a drug dealer. That guy was working with a setters cartel in Mexico. Those, one of those AK-47s was found with a gang of setters who murdered an American agent. And despite that, he only got probation. So just giving some, some kind of real punishment for people doing this, saying this is a crime. If you're getting a gun which is being used to murder children, being used to massacres, there must be some comeback. And then there can be also uh, laws to things like, I mean, in terms of theft of guns, right now there's no federal law in the United States about having in a shop to keep guns in a locked safe or a locked cabinet. So thieves just go in and just take them out of unlocked cabinets. Just simple things like that could have a, to have a big way. In terms of particularly the 50 cals, they could have some kind of extended background check on these, I think. I mean, if, you, if you're a 22-year-old guy in a baseball cap um, who's unemployed, walking into a shop and buying a, spending $50,000 $15, in cash on one of these guns, there should be perhaps a, a stop and have a look at who this person is. And if it is a regular collector, you know, that's okay. But if it's somebody linked to a cartel, then stop that sale taking place. Okay, I only have time for a yes or no answer from you on this. Given what you've shared with us, given the fact that we know that at least in at least one situation where El Chapo's son was arrested and then let go because the cartel outgunned the military, the Mexican military, is the situation getting to the point where the cartels can actually threaten the stability of Mexico and take down a government? Um, I don't think take down the entire federal government, but the country has already been destabilized and at local state level, 
they are taking down state governors, taking down mayors, and, and running chunks of the country at a local level. Amazing book, Ian. Uh, so much work has gone into it. That's so evident. And congratulations, you've done a great job. So last Sunday, we broadcast a segment on parental alienation. That's one parent, or parent, whichever you prefer, alienating a child or children from another parent during divorce proceedings. And it created a flood of requests for more information and for more caller input. This is a very, very serious issue. And it's one that affects so many people. 50% of marriages in this country end in divorce. And we know that during the pandemic, there's been more stress, more pressure, more challenges that people are facing, dealing with one another, living under the same roof, just not having the kinds of freedoms and opportunities to get out and do what they wanted to do. So it has created additional challenges. So let's get at this issue of parental alienation. Scott Taylor is a family law specialist, the Taylor Law Group in Langley, British Columbia. That's where you are, eh, Scott? I certainly am, Roy. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back. And thank you for suggesting this. Like Scott got in touch with me two weeks ago and suggested we do this topic. It's just, Scott, there was just no shortage of emails saying do more, do more, do more on this. So clearly it is a major issue across this country of ours. Well, sadly, sadly, Roy, it is. It's one of the... It's one of the biggest challenges faced by not only family law lawyers like myself, but but parents uh, across Canada. And you described it on your blog as the snake in the grass. Explain. Well, it's 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 something that is 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 insidious. It, it's hidden to a certain extent, which is what snakes are all about. And and it's it's really about poisoning a child's mind against the other parents. So. Uh, I think the symbolism is is, is apropos, uh, and a snake in the grass, uh, uh, some parent manipulating the minds of these children against the other parent. I just just thought it, uh, I thought a snake was a perfect fit. Yeah, Dr. Ellie Bolgar is back with us. Counseling and family mediation, also in Langley, British Columbia. Her specialty is traumatic stress, attachment, and personality disorders. Child psychologist, Dr. Bulger, thank you very much. You you must have had a, you must know how how significant this issue is. From your experience, parental alienation, how huge an issue is it? Thank you, Roy, for having me back. Uh, it is a very significant issue, and I see how even COVID is uh, playing a big part in that, as it is providing an opportunity to further alienate children from other parents. But um, from the psychological perspective, it is that trauma, the emotional trauma. And often, you know, um, talking with Scott about uh, parental alienation being a legal issue, but from my perspective, it's not just a legal issue. It's an emotional child protection. It's an emotional abuse, a child protection issue which has to be addressed, uh, how a child is being used, like Scott mentioned, uh, alienating one parent uh, from the child. So, uh, Dr. Bolgar, before we go to our calls, I just wonder, layperson's question, is it possible there are some parents who aren't even aware what's being done to them by the other parent that the alienation is taking place? So I'll ask you that. Does, does that happen? And what are some of the methods used? What's the most common method used to alienate a child from another parent? Uh, yes, there are times when parents are not fully aware that they are alienating the child from the parent. And we, we typically call this naive alienation. And But it still doesn't mean that alienation is not happening. And this kind of situation, the parent is grieving the loss of the divorce, feeling the pain of the loss of the relationship, and would often, because of the personality, uh, the narcissistic, like I mentioned, narcissistic traits, uh, often um, transferring his or her emotions of pain and loss to the child and using the child. So we, we hear comments from, from these parents that, your daddy divorced us, your daddy left us, or your mommy doesn't care about uh, our family any longer. And so it's the us, the enmeshment, the codependence between the, with the parents and the children. And when this dependence is attempted to break mm-hmm. by the divorce, the alienating parent is okay. transferring the emotions to the okay. child. So it's, yes, it's not always fully 
happening with full awareness. Sherry's in Calgary. Hi, Sherry. Hi there. I have a question for your experts here. It, like, it's easy to cry parent alienation, and how do they prove it? Because I'm on the other end where I have an ex who is claiming parent alienation and hasn't done his part with the, with the child all these years. So, like, I don't understand. Like, I'm on the other end of it. So I find this hard to believe that it's a... It's, it's easy to claim parent alienation, especially when, you you know, they don't do anything. So it's easier to blame the other parent for yourself uh, issues. Well, let's get, mean, let's get the legal perspective. Hold on, Cherry. Let's get the legal yeah, perspective sure. from Scott Taylor. Scott, what do you say? It's an interesting point. Well, you, you know, uh, Roy, I think, I think Sherry's raised a really good point. I mean, I mean that's like crying wolf. Uh, I mean, it, it's relatively easy for anyone to, to claim that something is happening, a, a certain syndrome is happening, and not accept any sort of responsibility or, or actually uh, or have any facts to substantiate that. So, um, I mean, that's really good. I mean, only looking at that particular individual and the situation uh, would determine whether whether parental alienation is actually at, at work or not. And that's something that certainly Dr. Bolger, with her expertise or someone similar to Dr. Bolger, would be able to make an assessment as to whether this is actually happening or not. Well, let me ask you just quickly from a legal perspective. If Sherry comes to uh, to you and you're her lawyer, yep. and she says, look, this the, the, my ex or my soon-to-be ex is claiming that I'm alienating the child or children against him. What do you do? What can you do legally? Well, well, is there an well, option? Well, well, well one, of the, one of the things, Roy, is, is looking at the ages of the children is, as well. I mean, are the children... Five, six, seven. Are they, Sherry, are they what, age, what age are the children, Sherry? Uh, when I uh, left and divorced my ex, my daughter was uh, six, and she's now eighteen. So and, he and, calls her on he calls her on her eighteenth birthday to wish her a happy birthday. But during those years, up until that time, he's never had no contact with her. Yeah, but yet he that's, parents, yeah. But yet he goes on social media and claims parent alienation. Well, you know, Roy, from legal in legal perspective, um, obviously this particular daughter um, has her own views about the situation, uh, and it, it doesn't appear like there's no legal recourse in this particular situation, okay. All right. other than what other than what he's saying maliciously through social media. Okay, so that's sort of after the fact. Okay, so Dr. Bulger, what are you getting from Sherry's call? Um, well, usually when. Um parents are separating and there is high conflict divorce and uh, children are not interested to have relationship with their parents, we would typically recommend uh, assessments. And there are assessments called the Hear of the Child Report, View of the Child Report, or Section 211. Section 211 report provides a very detailed assessment on what is happening between uh, the parents. Okay, and if I if I if I may, Doctor Bolger, only because of time. What are you getting as a professional? If we can set the the law books and the reg- rules and regulations aside for a moment, as a child psychologist, what are you hearing? What what's this case say to you? It is the response often of the parent. There could be a malicious, um, like I don't know enough about the situation, but it could be. You know, there are times when parents simply give up, mm-hmm. give up on their children, because when a child um, loses the parent, we mm-hmm. call that child an orphan. But when a parent loses the child, there is no word really to describe the pain. Okay. And so often when people are consumed by the pain of losing their child and they are hearing different type of um, advices from people, they often give up. Okay, they Sherry. Give up and let go, and that could be the possibility I here. Okay. With the, uh, I actually disagree with your child psychologist because in our court order, he was supposed to have counseling for u- reunification back at an early age. He didn't want to pay for the counseling, so mm-hmm. that's no fault of the other parents, and that's no fault of the child. So, that's what's the, the relationship of- between the child, between your daughter and and her dad now? There is none. She doesn't doesn't have one. Okay. He's never take he's never taken the initiative to go out of his way it's to, very sad. to actually have a relationship with the child other than blame the other parent on social media for parent alienation. Okay. Sherry, thank yeah, you very much for the call. And it's that's a that's a really tough one. That's a really Roy Roy Sherry's said something else there. Is it if if there's an order 
that the child take counseling or that there be other processes that are supposed to take place, then it's really incumbent on the other parent to make sure that those steps are taken. And if they don't, I, Scott, I, then what? Well, well, well then you, you basically, I have to return to court and say, I want, I want this order enforced. Because there are remedies and there are consequences when, when one party decides not to comply with a court order. Okay. And in Sherry's situation, right. don't know exactly exa- what happened, but Sherry could have gone, or maybe couldn't, or should have gone back to court and said, I want this person to be okay. held to the terms. So I That's said I would get more callers on the air, yeah, so sure. I'm going I'm to cut you guys short. Yeah, a little okay. shorter, right? I know the answers are long and very important, but we have more callers who want to get their stories on. Steve is in Calgary as well. Steve, what's going on? Uh, I'm going to try and explain it in the gist that I have the time. Uh, I was involved with this girl back in the early late 90s. She ended up, got, she got kicked out of her house, came to live with me, got pregnant. The child was born in 1999. She stayed at my house for the first four years of her life. I went to work one day, I came home, empty house, gone. Everything's gone. I'm freaking out. So next thing you know, I find out that she had planned to flee to Ontario. She lived in it, moved to Edmonton. So I started putting stuff together and ended up getting going to court and stuff like that. And during the time that she lived in Edmonton, I had to go to Edmonton for every weekend for three and a half years, had to fight in court with her for three and a half years. She didn't abide, abide by any of the court orders, had to go to trial with her. She wanted a paternity test, $600 out of my pocket. I had to pay for her myself. She even, she was so mad one time in court, she kicked the elevator door and stopped it with my grandma and my aunt in it. Okay, uh, St- Steve, it sounds like a terrible story, but where does the child alienation come in here? Child alienation? Yeah. Comes in at the end of the day after the three and a half years of doing what I did to prove that I would do whatever. Turned out the kid wasn't mine. But you still love the child, I imagine. Yeah. I only saw him for the first four years. I haven't seen him since. And how long ago was that? He was born in 99 and four years. Does it still hurt? Oh, of course it does. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear it. Of course, of course it does, man. And, and people wonder why you got to look at people the other way. You don't have respect for them. You, well, okay. You, this so, is what you keep doing. Steve, I, I thank you for the call. Email from uh, Janine. My children and I have been alienated for many years. They are now young men. I'm just learning what happened to them as children when they would visit their father. I spent over $70,000 in legal fees, he started when they were very young. The things he would repeat over and over again, very disturbing things about me. And, uh, and the email goes on uh, in some detail. We need to be blunt. Parental alienation is both child abuse and domestic violence, writes Janine. And uh, this from, there's no name here, uh, texts my friend, has a spouse and in-laws who are absolutely abusing his children by alienating his children from him. He's on his fifth lawyer after three and a half years and has only seen or heard from his children once in the last year. Lawyers are just as much of the problem as the abusing parent. I'm just reading the emails. Now let's get back to my guests, uh, Scott Taylor, Scott Taylor Law Group. He's a very good lawyer. Family lawyer in Langley, <laughs> Thank, thank you for that. You right. are, and you're, and I hear. It. I mean, you come on the air and you're open about about <laughs> issues, and you you well, you've taken on some very very challenging issues and, and and very difficult issues on this show, Scott. So I have a lot of respect for you. Uh, Dr. Ellie Bolgar is with us as well, and uh, she's counseling and family mediation in Langley, British Columbia. Specialty is traumatic stress attachment, personality disorders. I want to get some answers from you as quickly as I can because there's more callers on the air. So what did you get, Dr. Bolgar? What did you get from Steve, our last caller? Well, you know, sometimes, like I said, uh, the loss of the parent is causing so much pain. And what happens often that I see with uh, parental alienation that the the rejected parent simply burns out. Uh, like the email that you were reading, uh, people spend a lot of money on legal fees and they don't get, get anywhere. They can't get anything done, accomplished. 
And so constantly uh, feeling this emotional pain and the arguing, the, re- uh, the rejection from their children, often people grieve up after uh, years of fighting for their children. Okay. And so I would encourage people to take a different approach when it comes to alienation. They definitely have to see uh, somebody who's highly trained to treat um, uh, parental alienation in therapeutic settings, who okay. has the uh, ability to treat attachment, personality disorders, and uh, has a good understanding of the family system approach. All right. Scott, on the from Steve's call in Calgary. So for, so well, for uh, four years, right, he's in court, and then he finds out the child isn't his child. Well, you, well, you know what, and, and again... But he still loves the, the child. Apart from the, the biological connection or not, um, he, he's still a father. But, but what, what makes Steve's situation even more challenging for Steve is the fact that he had such little time. In yeah. other words, when you're apart, when there's huge distances, and you're spending minimum parenting time with the child, that's that's fertile ground for alienation. Right. So, I mean, we can't say... Almost that he, by osmosis, well, right? Well, 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 that's right. I mean, so unless he can spend more time with the child, but the child's in a different city, right. but then someone like Dr. Bulger or a counselor is absolutely crucial for the children, even co-parenting counseling. So if the parents can be on the same page, that might be more difficult, uh-huh. but the children absolutely need counseling. All right, let me get Jeff on from Winnipeg. Jeff, thank you for the call. Go ahead, please. Hi, my question is, um, when my uh, divorce started, um, we went in front of the judge, and we had uh, an agreement for joint separation and um, and for joint custody, but she never accepted that. That never happened. Is there any consequences? So there was a court order? Uh, well, th- this was the meeting in front of the judge first. Okay. Scott? Well, well I, I, don't know the terms, I don't know the terms of the order, but it's what sort of I referred to a little bit earlier in the conversation is if, if, if something is not, if a party's not complying with the terms of a court order, it is never a good idea to sort of sit back and hope that it fixes itself. It, it, it's a situation, it has to be remedied as soon as possible. It, you know, delay yeah. is, is never a good tactic. Yeah. It, needs to be, it needs to be addressed right away, All right. every situation. All right, Jeff, thank you for the call. Dr. Boger, well, the, the recurring theme that's sort of running around inside my head is that it's so disturbing that children become trophies. Yes, the, the children are being used um, between, uh, for the parent to alienate, and it is so important that the child uh, is um, receiving therapy and reunification therapy, co-parenting is typically offered. Uh, Scott and I share several cases where uh, we would see um, success with the family, helping the the alienating parents to to recognize the damage that this type of behavior is causing for the children Mm -hmm. and helping the children to actually separate themselves from the alienating parent. So it's not me and mommy together thinking together, but the child to communicate, turning towards to the uh, rejected parent okay. and developing a communication. Scott, uh, before I get another call on here, does, sure. does, in court, does a judge ever say to the child, what's happening to you? What do you think? Well, 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 well first off, the, the, the court will never typically talk to a child. The judge is, is never aware of what a child is, is saying, other than through things like reports prepared by other people, yeah. affidavits. Uh, so there's really no sort of visceral uh, uh, contact between, between a judge and a child. Too bad. Remember, judges, Roy, are not child psychologists. Um, so it yeah, is I vital know. that whatever information, whether it's from Dr. Bolger or someone else, that has to be put before the judge, before the court. That's what the court needs to make informed decisions. So if it I were a judge, I, Scott, if I were a yeah. judge, I'd be yeah. saying to the child, talk to me. Well, I mean, and, and again, the child is talking to the judge indirectly, not directly. I mean, there are situations, I, I've had situations in the past where a judge does have the authority to take the child into chambers and have a chat with the kid, and have a chat with, chat with the child. 
but with, with that can happen, and, and and courts have jurisdiction to do that, but but typically courts don't because again, a judge is not trained as a psychologist. Yeah. They do not have that expertise, and I I would think that they again they're just not. That's not an area that they can. Yeah, you know, I, I got you. I got. I understand. But the kids are going to tell you the truth. Joe's in Calgary. Joe, what do you say? What's what's the story, Joe? Uh, just quickly, <clears throat> the question I have is: How do you deal with when something is said that's not true? I got two kids that are seven and eight years old, mm. and the mother says that I don't share um, the Section Seven and I don't t- pay the MEP, so therefore they they don't have any money to do things at her house, and uh, they eat better at my house. I have fifty-fifty custody. So what do you say to a child? You know, when you know you're paying, you know you're giving money, what's the answer? First of all, uh, it's important that when you hear that your ex is saying things that are not true, make sure that you're managing your emotions. Don't don't fight fire with fire. Don't Don't argue. When it comes to the children, make sure that you're saying... Um, you're correcting, you have to defend yourself, but you're correcting yourself, you're correcting uh, and painting what the reality is without um, alienating or trying to bad-mouthing the other parent. Never say anything negative about the other parent. Be straightforward to the child, and sometimes you need to say that this is an issue between mom and dad. And this is not an issue. This is not something that you should be involved. Okay, let me ask this question of uh, Joe. What, what does your child say? Did you, what's the response from the child and the children? Well, they say, for example, that, that I don't give money for things like hockey or... Is, or this, what the kids or tell, is this what the kids tell you? Do they, uh, mom is telling them that and they're repeating it to you? That's exactly right. And, and I just say what, what happens... It, what they're saying is not true, and it, you have your mom call me. And that's that's just all I've yeah. tried to well, say, because if I say anything more than that, it's a fight. Yeah, Roy, Roy, one thing that's really, really important, because, again, the caller just said he wants the kids to talk to the mom, yeah. like tell mom this. That, I don't believe, would be perhaps the most productive way to proceed. In other words, that's just using the child again. The child's going to have another conversation with dad, conversation with mom. They're going to feel in between both parents. Mm-hmm. I would pick up the phone as this individual, pick up the phone, talk directly with the, the his, his former spouse, leave the children out of it. Dragging the children through, yes, he is, no, he isn't, right. is a recipe for disaster. Okay. Joe, thank you for the call from Calgary. Scott, thank you as always. Scott Taylor, Taylor Law Group in Langley, British Columbia. Thank you, Dr. Bogart, Dr. Ellie Bogart, Counseling and Family Mediation in Langley, British Columbia. Her specialty is traumatic stress attachment personality disorders. I'm sorry to have rushed you through it, but there I had to get as many callers on as I could, and I, I know you want to provide expert opinion, which we'd greatly appreciate. So I was sent a very interesting interview that took place on sfgate.com, San Francisco, sfgate.com. And uh, the headline is, Stop Panicking About the COVID-19 Variants, says University of California in San Francisco, infectious diseases specialist in a wide-ranging interview. So it goes on. Dr. Monica Gandhi joins us. She's the professor of medicine and associate division chief of the Division of HIV, Infectious Diseases, and Global Medicine at UCSF San Francisco General Hospital. Her master's is in public health with a focus on epidemiology and biostatistics. Dr. Gandhi, thank you very much for taking the time. And as I thank say, you. yeah. So as I say to some of my friends and people I know who are in the medical business who challenge orthodoxy, you're swimming against the stream, and you're certainly doing that um, because when you say that uh, it's time to stop panicking about the COVID nineteen variants, I would imagine you get pushback. So, what's the most fundamental argument you put forward? Yeah, you know, my argument has been actually very consistent all along and about the variants or about all of this, which is around harm reduction. It, the, the question is not to scare the public, not to shame the public, but to say, okay, we have this pandemic. We know how to keep safe. Let's talk about masks and distancing and how to keep safe. And then at this point, we have the vaccine. And to bring up and to think about the variants to this degree um, instead of just concentrating on vaccine rollout to get us back to normal, I think it is completely impeding our, our conversations, and it could lead to vaccine hesitancy. 
And there's been a lot of talk about that. Uh, we're, st- we're still waiting in this country to uh, obtain vaccines in anywhere near the numbers percentage-wise that you have in the United States because our federal government has not done the job they should be doing. And so I'm flowing, swimming against the stream of the fans of the government, but I do that all the time. Uh, so, so harm reduction is the issue for you. So now what I've heard and, and time and again, and we've debated it on this program, lockdowns versus harm reduction. Would you address that, please? Yes. The idea of harm reduction is that humans um, are not, uh, they, they're not deniers because they want to be around each other. They're not, they, they want, they may have to take some risks in the context of a pathogen, and how to tell them how to stay safe, um, and uh, even if they have to be out working or seeing each other to take risks. Lockdowns mean you decide that the public is like infants, and you tell them just completely stay away from each other, and we're going to ensure that you do that um, by ensuring that you have nowhere to go to be around each other and shame you um, around holidays that you would want to see your family. It doesn't make sense. And the reason I'm so interested in harm reduction is I'm an HIV doctor. So um, I'm an infectious disease doctor, but I've done HIV my, almost my entire career. And we never told people living with HIV, oh, well, now you're dirty or you can be, you know, you may have a pathogen, so you need to stay away from other humans. Instead, we said, okay, within the context of having HIV, let me tell you how to stay safe. Let me, how to, let me tell you how to keep other people safe. And we could have done that with this virus because we knew a lot about April, actually about how to keep people safe. So keeping people safe. Now, the vaccines are being rolled out, different rates, different countries, different communities. And you've done really well. And the numbers in San Francisco have been pretty good, haven't they, as far as COVID is concerned? You know, they have. Um, The cases and deaths have been the lowest of anywhere in the country. Okay. The issue is at what cost. Um, And what I mean by that is we have a very wealthy city. Um, There's a lot of tech and finance here, and that population has done well. The people who have uh, contracted COVID were those who needed to go out and work and be the essential workers to serve those um, who were staying at home. By keeping a more harm reduction approach, we could have spared the poor and the working class not just the effects of COVID, but likely the effects of all the economic insecurity that they have suffered as a result of the restrictive lockdowns. And we have overdose uh, deaths off the roof, three times as high as um, as our COVID-related deaths. Homelessness, uh, HIV outcomes are, are going more poorly. There's so much collateral damage that's going by the wayside. So I think a more balanced approach, I think about the Asian countries, they're really balanced about it. They no mass distancing ventilation work. They put those in play, and they've kept things more open. So so we have COVID, and the numbers are declining when they weren't supposed to be, but they are. And now we have the variants, which are um, causing great concern. How would you suggest, and keeping the harm reduction issue in mind as the sort of fundamental of the answer, how would you suggest that COVID and the variants be dealt with? So at this point, yeah, the numbers are declining. And um, so we can tell people, okay, so we're going to keep the mask, distancing, ventilation going when we can, but we need to have more open elements. School is a a huge consideration, right? Because collateral damage of having school closures, I think only over the next couple of years will we realize how much damage we did by keeping schools closed. So with those three parameters in mind, that's how those are called mitigation strategies. You keep those at play while um, we go through the next phase of the pandemic. I'm very sorry about uh, Canada not having the vaccines to the extent that they should uh, at this point, but vaccines will fundamentally get us out of the pandemic. They're not one more mitigation strategy. People, they're not like another mask. They're literally the solution to the Gordian knot. They will get us out of the pandemic. So to encourage people to be excited about the vaccines, stop saying... After vaccines, your life won't change. Inaccurate, completely inaccurate. Um, that's exactly what vaccines are going to do, is get us back to normal. Inaccurate that variants um, are going to ruin the efficacy of the vaccine. In a complicated way, variants have something to do with your antibodies may not be as high against a variant from a vaccine, but your 
major way that you fight virus, which are your T cells. They look like they're working against all the variants when you get them from vaccines. So let's focus on the optimism. Life has been so hard. Sorry, let's yes, focus on the optimism now and get them. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 